the reptile hobby has better welfare than most other pets. There isn't an enormous um, reptile welfare crisis within, within the hobby or the trade. Welcome to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Tony Wigley, who is the founder of Responsible Reptile Keeping. RRK is an international organization that is designed to help promote, protect, and support responsible reptile keeping. Not only do they help support and promote the privilege for us to continue to keep these incredible animals, but they also promote and advocate for higher welfare standards and higher levels of husbandry, very similar to what we promote on this podcast as well. The sort of philosophies between the two, my podcast, as well as Responsible Reptile Keeping really do align almost perfectly. In this episode, Tony talks about how he got into reptile keeping, his history with that really laid a foundation for what he's doing today. And we also the main meat and potatoes of this episode is really discussing the battle that we have with animal rights groups. Now, we all know that once in a while, animal rights groups do have rightful criticism of herpeticulture, but a lot of the times they use wild claims, they have unsupported facts, and it, it, they become a very difficult organization to fight against. So the goal always is how do we protect our freedom and our privilege to keep these animals while simultaneously leveling up our care. We never want to fight for the right to keep reptiles just solely for the right to keep a reptile. We want to be making sure that we are highlighting all the benefits of reptile keeping and punching the holes through the animal rights arguments that are actually very straw man type arguments that don't hold a lot of weight and actually do damage to these animals in captivity even even in the wild as well so in this episode we talk all about that and of course tony talks about responsible reptile keeping what it does how it's going how he's using it to promote the proper message and moving forward there's some incredible ideas i cannot wait they're only four months into this project and it's already creating quite a buzz on the internet i know a few of you have actually recommended them as a guest so that's why we're having this conversation now and uh, i cannot wait to share it with you before we jump into the episode if you are looking for more information on this podcast, head to animalsathomenetwork.com. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this podcast. There is an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you would like to help produce the show by funding the production, whether that's space that I have to pay for, you know, a server, a server space for the podcast, equipment, my time, whatnot, you can do that over at patreon.com slash animals at home. And of course, then you're automatically added to the Discord server, which you can have conversation with like-minded keepers. Thank you so much to everyone who's been sharing the show on Instagram and Facebook and whatnot. That really does help bring new eyeballs to the podcast or ears to the podcast as well. And I do very much appreciate it. Let's jump into this episode with Tony. Enjoy. Welcome to the GoFundMe for the Ball Python Deep Dive Project. This is an episodic docu-series. We want to include all the relevant studies on ball pythons and then weave that into the story, weave that into the journey of discovery for the viewer. But this isn't just a documentary, we're doing real science at the same time. So we're creating an international study on how ball pythons use their enclosures. And then finally, we want to analyse all the interpretations, all the footage of wild animals bring it all together, extract the data from studies, look at this holistic viewpoint, and then identify the gaps, and then go out to Ghana ourselves and film those gaps. 
We want to go to Ghana with a team of professionals and film bull pythons in the wet season. Will there be so much flooding that bull pythons are forced to climb for refuge? Or will they just be moving in their environment? Let's find out. Either way, we'll show what we find. This is something of an order of magnitude that has never been done before. We want to set a new bar and put it right up here. So if you'd like to help in any way to make this possible, then please check out the GoFundMe. Awesome. Well, Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. It's very exciting, I have to say. Yeah, I've uh, you know I've been watching your project, and I've had a few people reach out and say, "Hey, we, you got to have them on." And so I, I can't wait to get into uh, the project you're working on. But l- let's give yourself a little bit of background because you have been in herpeticulture for a long time, and you've had sort of an array of jobs, starting from a, from a young boy working with reptiles. So why don't you just kind of give us a little bit of your reptile history? Yeah, it's true. I've been around for a while, but I have to say I've been rather under the radar, so to speak. Um, So I started working with reptiles back in the late 1980s at what was then the biggest reptile house in Europe. Um, It was based in a place called Walsall in the middle of England, and it was run by a guy called Dave Lester. And he was essentially the reptile godfather of the UK, maybe even of Europe. And being at that store at the age of 15, 16, right right through for a good few years, um, I got to meet anybody who was anybody in the UK. So just to throw out a few names that um, UK and European reptile guys would know, I was hanging around with Mark O'Shea, Luke Yeomans, uh, John Coote, Jim Pether, Ray Hine, um, yeah so many names that people recognize and i was always the young kid like the the vivarium cleaner the 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 lowest of the low sat around these great herpetological giants just soaking up all their information and and talking to them you know i had access to the top brains and that was quite a privileged position and then um after dave died my boss died um i was still in touch with all these guys so i became essentially a, a professional herpetological sidekick. I was working all these with all these guys on the projects that they were doing, on the animals that they were working with, and on the, um, you know, everything that they were involved with to get me involved. And, and, and again, that was, that was quite a privilege. I worked with um, retail stores, wholesale, live food breeding projects, venomous collections, and a couple of zoos and things like that. And so, yeah, it was quite a quite a privileged position. And one of the things that happened thereafter was that the people who ran the reptile magazines, the consumer reptile magazines, that they had trouble getting hold of these big players because the big players are obviously busy. Mm-hmm. So they said, hey, Tony, would you like to write some articles about the work that you do and the species that you're working with? And so I said, yeah, let's let's do that. So I started writing. And, and from there, my, I kind of got a side hustle really as a journalist which eventually turned into my main career but for a long time I I wrote for all the big reptile magazines worldwide and then all of the trade magazines worldwide talking about reptiles for pet trade magazines and it was then that I met a guy called Chris Newman And I know that was something that we wanted to talk about, but Chris Newman used to run a magazine called The Reptilian in the UK. 
And as part of his job, of course, he had to write about news in the trade. And a lot of that news seemed to focus on what the animal rights people were up to. And so from there, Chris became a kind of herptological, herpticulture uh, advocacy figure that everybody got to know. And when I started writing about reptiles, of course, it was my turn to start writing about that. And as the reptilian finished, I kind of took over writing about those topics. So it essentially became my job to keep my finger on the pulse of what was happening with the animal rights groups. I worked closely with Chris Newman and the work that he did thereafter. And so that's how I came to be it's kind of transition really from being a full-blown keeper to doing the work that we do now. It's a long, slow 35-year process, but here we are. So your, your career as a journalist, was it always focused in the exotic and, and reptile space or did you were you doing other reporting as well? Yeah, other reporting. It, it really happened that um, I had a motorbike accident, which meant that I could no longer kind of do an active job that I was doing before. So I was like, okay, what can I do while I sit in a wheelchair or stumble around the house on crutches? What can I do for a living? And I was like, okay, so I'll be a professional writer. That was my only option, really. And so then, um, by then, I was uh, living on a narrowboat. You can see we're on a narrowboat at the moment. That's where we live. That's where our office is. So I write for the ultra-nerdy um, narrowboat world. I also write about ultra-nerdy reptiles and uh, write about a lot of other topics, too. But most of our work over the last 15, maybe 20 years, has been writing for visitor attractions. So, you know, you go to a museum, you see something in a cabinet, you don't know what it is. So you read the blurb on the panel. Yeah. yeah. Well, we write all the blurb and we write the um, we write the guidebooks and we produce little videos and things like that. And that work has actually informed, very strongly informed the work that we do now with responsible reptile keeping. So I'm sure we'll come come back to that. But the skills we develop to do that work well for visitor attractions translate very well into making sure that the work we do for responsible reptile keeping does its job too. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. As you were explaining that, I'm like, oh, I bet this a lot of those skills translate directly, you know, just learning to produce content. Oh, goodness, and, I can't tell you. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, keep attention and whatnot. So and I'm kind of curious, like, you know, we've had, there's, we'll get into the animal rights stuff in, in a second, but if anybody that's in the hobby knows how much of an impact that's starting to have, we're starting to have more eyes on us and whatnot. Yeah. From you, when you were, you know, 15, 16, is there like a when you think back on the hobby back then is there a part of you that's trying to bring it back to a time where it was almost simpler like obviously we've come a long way in husbandry we've, we've done a lot of things that are a lot better for the animals we're doing less wild caught importation all these things that you know the, the bad things that we do we're getting better but there was yeah. this really almost like it kind of feels like a golden era of herpeticulture back you know 20 30 years ago where people oh, were was. very engaged in the scientific method the biology side and just enjoying it so as far as you're concerned, is that you kind of feel yourself sort of trying to pull it back to that as uh, your early experiences? Oh, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, mm. Something I should just mention quickly is I, I mentioned we live on a narrowboat, and I don't know how much is being picked up, but it's raining here now. The narrowboat's made out of steel, so there's kind of a drumming noise. I'm hoping that's not coming through in the background too. No, much. I can't hear it at all. No. Hey, that's great news. Let's forget about that then. <laughs> um, but yeah, we I often talk to some of the guys who were my mentors back in the day. 
and we often reminisce back to the good old days when we had it great where we could kind of do what we wanted and um, everything was available and th there were no great pushes for banning what we do and there was no kind of we were kind of underground nobody knew we existed and you know we didn't make the news very much and there was you know the, the hobby just wasn't even anywhere near as big as it is today there were a few nerdy anorak guys like us meeting in the back room of some pub to have a herpetological society meeting but we could do what we liked and we and we and we you know that that was the golden era as far as we were concerned but i'm actually writing the i'm ghostwriting an autobiography for one of my mentors where we look back at the state of husbandry and how we how well and how badly we were able to keep animals back then and we we both have mixed feelings about it the first thing is that there were so many species coming through that were brand new they'd never been kept before they'd never been imported no one had ever kept them and so by default and unavoidably we were forced to learn hands-on you know an animal would come in we would have no idea how to keep it and we would do our best to guess and this was before the internet came out where i could kind of type questions into the internet you know and so by default there were animals that we weren't able to keep very well but the other side of that was we were able to learn and every repti reptile keeper today owes a debt of thanks to those keepers who spent their own time and their own money learning how to keep these species so so yeah and it was around about the 90s when reptile reptile keeping was becoming popular that we started to get some trouble from animal rights groups. We, we'd kind of put our head above the parapet somewhat and got on the radar. And that was when we started having trouble. And it was really Chris who opened my eyes to the kind of problems that we were having and the situations that we were facing. So Chris Newman really is the you know the reason i'm here today and he's also probably the reason why we still have a hobby and a trade in the uk and most of europe at least wow so, so let's talk a little bit about that when you say the 90s the animal rights group started kind of popping in what was that early experience like how did you know how how did you become aware of that and and what were they up to as far as you know trying to to damage the hobby or stop the hobby well, to be quite honest, in the 90s, I, I had no idea. I was as sheltered and as obsessed with my hobby as most keepers are today. And the political landscape just didn't register on my Richter scale at all. Mm -hmm. And and that that's how most hobbyists and keepers operate today. And that's quite understandable. You know, we they're interested in their animal. And I was. That was all I was interested in. And throughout the 90s, I had no idea of the work that Chris, Chris Newman was doing. But what was actually happening was that the reptile shows in the UK were being attacked by the animal rights groups who were doing their best to close them down. And that really, I think, was how it began in the UK. Reptile shows came under scrutiny. And to be honest, the scrutiny that they were getting and the types of problems that they were, that they were experiencing back then were so unfair and so ridiculous and so one-sided were the arguments that I'm surprised it wasn't bigger news. And I was surprised when, when I look back and when I found out what was happening, I was like, my goodness, why didn't we all just stand up and do something about that? So, 
It was so ridiculous. So do you mean that the what the reptile keepers were doing was so ridiculous and it, that, that was bad? Or, no, or what, what the they are... rights campaign is okay. doing. So, so what, what, what were they doing? Oh, it's a good story. So back in the 60s, 70s and early 80s, there used to be a big market in London, an outdoor street market in London. And you could buy anything. You could buy a tiger. You could buy a chimp. You could buy, wow. you know... Uh, giant tortoise you, you, you could buy anything and these cages were just piled up on top of each other in the center of London in the rain and the snow and and whatever else was happening any reptile you like you could buy there and of course that was abhorrent it was terrible and a law was passed that said you are not allowed to trade animals from a market stall so if you have a market stall you cannot sell animals from a market stall so then if we fast forward 10, 12, 15 years or whatever, the animal rights people um, went to court to say that reptile shows were um, running a market store and selling animals. Mm. Now, we know that a reptile show is very, very different from the situation in London in the 60s and 70s. It's run by enthusiasts who are passionate about their animals and, you know, the animals are only there temporarily and they're well kept and they're of a species and, and families that can, that are okay in the conditions that they're in, especially short term. And there is no comparison, but that law was used disingenuously to, to put a stop to reptile shows. And many of the reptile shows that were happening in those days just closed down. And we still have similar problems today. Uh, the big reptile show in Doncaster, run by the International Herpetological Society, has had to move from its venue because of the pressure that animal rights groups put on the venue and the venue wouldn't host us anymore. And now we, we're exhibiting at another venue halfway down the country. And it's disingenuous and it's unfair and it's impractical. But that's that's what's happening. That's the kind of laws and that's the kind of pressure we're facing. Mm. And yeah, and that's... It always seems like the AR groups have such a large amount of money that it's very easy for them to manipulate. Manipulate might be too strong of a word, but in some ways it is manipulation. They can manipulate public officials because they can come in with a one-sided story. And then if we aren't as organized as we ought to be, then they can run with that really quickly. And it, it would be easy to convince someone, hey, they're you know setting up in a gymnasium with all these animals. It's basically a market. We shouldn't be allowed to do that. And if, if if the reptile keepers aren't allowed to respond to that, then it could easily get shut down. So I guess Chris must be going back and forth for like, you know, 15, 20 years through the 90s and the early 2000s with these people. How was he ever having to? Oh, man, yeah. Like what sort of things was he having to do in order to try to block those animal rights, you know, claims? Well, the first thing is, is that Chris, when he started, had no experience of, of dealing with this stuff. And... Uh, to, to my knowledge, Chris just started making a lot of noise and forcing his way into the meetings that were happening where this, where these decisions were being made and where legislation was being discussed. And he, he basically strong-armed his way in there to be part of the discussion because it's ridiculous. If you're going to pass a law about reptiles and how they should be kept and where they should be kept and what should happen, surely reptile keepers and reptile specialists should be around that table. And if they're not around the table, then we have a problem. And your guy, Chris, um, your guy, um, Phil Goss at uh, USR put it very well indeed when he said that legislation is created by the people who show up. Yeah. And so in the UK, Chris was the first person to be showing up. 
And in his efforts to, to protect the trade and protect the hobby that he felt so passionate about, his magazine uh, failed and then his business failed. And he basically spent all of his money um, fighting the animal rights groups and representing for the reptile trade. And it reached the point where he could no longer do this, of course, because everybody needs to pay the bills. And so thankfully, the UK's reptile trade, there are two big wholesalers in the UK. There used to be three. Uh, so British Herpetological Supply, Eurorep, used to be one of them, but they, they don't exist anymore. I think they got bought out. And now the two big reptile wholesalers in the UK, Peregrine Live Food and Monkfield Nutrition, those are the two organisations that, that um, took up the funding to, uh, to provide funding for Chris. And the organisation he formed was called the uh, Reptile and Exotic Pet Trade Association. And as a result, we became pretty well supported and pretty well um, established on the political scene in the in the UK. However, we do still suffer from and have done for decades, still suffer from the same problems we always suffer from that puts us on uh, the back foot when compared with animal rights groups. We're poorly funded. We're poorly organized. Um, we don't have the same of support that the animal rights groups are able to muster because their their approach is usually quite disingenuous. They say that, um, that they play on the heartstrings of their supporters and they gather funds from those supporters. I think World Animal Protection bought in the last time I looked 32 million pounds in a year. Wow. You know, we, we just simply don't have those funds to play with. They're well organized, they're well funded, and they're well supported, and they're around every table, usually three, four, five or more um, organizations at a time, explaining a, their side of the story. And apart from people like Chris and a handful of others, we, we simply weren't there. Yeah, I mean, it's much easier for the animal rights groups to appeal to a wider audience. Obviously, we're dealing with a oh, niche yeah. group of people who have a very unusual, you know, hobby, and you could make an emotional appeal to people. Most people are going to say, "Yeah, you maybe you shouldn't keep snakes." So it's a, it's kind of an easy sales pitch for those people. Oh, it and is. There's also that for us, we kind of have to ha have that balance between making sure that we're defending the hobby and the 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 the. the privilege to keep these animals in captivity but also in some ways we don't want to defend just for the sake of defending right because then we get into this and i see that in a lot of times in the states as well where we just like I'm, i get to keep these animals no matter what and then then you throw out husbandry you throw out uh, any ethics of keeping and it just becomes this i want to keep a snake so i get to keep a snake and and so we have to kind of strike that balance between saying yeah we, we should earn this privilege to do it but it's not just to fight to have the right to do it if that makes sense yeah well, this is exactly why we made the organization's name Responsible Reptile Keeping, because neither you, I, Chris Newman, Phil Goss, or any other um, advocate for the hobby and the trade wants to stand behind poor keepers. We don't, want, we, we don't want to represent them. We don't want to support them. We don't want to perpetuate them. In fact, what we want to do is absolutely the opposite. Now, luckily, However way you look at the reptile hobby and trade, whichever way you measure it, whichever data evidence you have, the reptile hobby has better welfare than most other pets. There isn't an enormous 
um, reptile welfare crisis within, within the hobby or the trade. Yes, there are bad actors. Yes, there are problems. And yes, we want to be doing something about that. But certainly there is um, a much bigger movement of people who want to do the best, who want to keep them well. And that goes for businesses as well. I think that businesses and stores especially get such a bad rap, you know, simply because they make a living from it. These are passionate people who want their animals to be well looked after and, and want their, their customers to be happy. And if they don't do a good job, hey, they go out of business real quick, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, I, I like to sing the praises of the reptile trade, which has come on leaps and bounds in the last 20 years. It's unrecognizable. So, yeah, I'll, I'll stick that flag in the sand and say thank you to those guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about uh, Warwick or Clifford? Is it Cl Clifford is his first name, I think? Or Warwick. Oh, yeah, yeah, War Warwick, yeah. So this is somebody that I've come across. I mean, everybody has come across him at some point. I mean, even me years ago, probably five or six years ago, naively even cited some of his work because he's, ri he's written some papers that are, you know, uh, have to do with animal welfare and they sort of fall into the whatever it was. I, I kind of forget what the paper was. And it wasn't... Uh, from my memory, I don't remember it standing out as an animal rights piece. It was more about, you know, I think it was like snake behavior or snake stretching out or whatnot. But anyway, he, he's a, a kind of a sneaky character. So some people have heard his name before. Can you kind of give us a background about who, who he is? I, I kind of can, but I have to admit that I've never met the guy. Um, he pretty much refuses to integrate or to debate or uh, or to have anything to do with the, with representatives from the trade. So he's a little bit mysterious in that respect. So some of what I know about him is anecdotal, but I, um, I'm confident enough about the sources that have explained this to me to, um, to give it a go. So Clifford Warwick was an importer and trader of reptiles in the 70s. And according to all accounts, even by the standards of the day, which were pretty bad, Clifford Warwick was abhorrent. He was very bad indeed at keeping reptiles. And um, apparently everything that he kept died. So um, that's, that's the first thing. That was when he first came onto the radar. But then he seemed to switch camps and go over to the animal rights side and start campaigning that maybe because if he couldn't keep animals, then animals can't be kept or shouldn't be kept. And he's put to the untrained eye, he might seem convincing. The papers that he writes are look like scientifically credible evidence, but it doesn't take much investigation. It doesn't take much scrutiny to realize that they're not very robust at all. Mm -hmm. And his approach to creating science seems to be, this is what I believe. Let me create or, or find some evidence to support it. It doesn't seem to be balanced. And that's not good science, of course. Um, we, we know that he's not entirely um, credible. He, he was often cited and claimed to be a doctor, to have a doctorate for many years when he didn't. Um, we haven't been able to trace the, the, um, the academic uh, organizations, institutions where he apparently got his um, credentials. And there's a lot about him that just simply doesn't add up. He claims to have been trained by the SAS, which is the um, UK Secret Service, very much like your Navy SEALs and uh, you know, Special Forces groups. 
how true that is, I, I don't know. Um, but th th he was also asked to present his proof of his credentials to Parliament at one point and either couldn't, wouldn't or just didn't. Um, so there's a lot to be sceptical about Chris Clifford Warwick for. We, we've attempted to invite him for debate on several occasions and is always, um, to my knowledge, uh, refused. And so, yeah, what, what can we say? He, the papers that he writes are often supposedly peer-reviewed, but you'll always see the name, the same names in the peer review uh, section. It's always Philip Arena and uh, Christina Stedman and a handful of other of the usual suspects that are hardcore animal rights uh, advocates, and they pass their own papers around each other and peer review them. So, you know, that, that looks like, as far as I'm aware, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck mm -hmm. and it looks like a duck to me. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's the thing is that these animal rights groups do have a, a tremendous amount of funding like we already spoke about and they are willing to, because it's a, it's a very, it's a very aggressive ideology, right? Many of them are, you know, vegetarians or vegans mostly and I, you know, not passing judgment on the way someone eats, but a lot of times these animal rights groups have a, ve a very aggressive ideology that they are really wanting others to to They're bind onto. Yeah, it's very deep and and they are willing to do things that aren't necessarily, you know, ethical in an ironic way in order to get their message across so it can be it can yes, be kind of sure. difficult and 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 like we already mentioned you know they could pick out they could cherry pick things that we are doing that aren't good and that's why we need to do as you said the responsible keeping piece is, is we need to make sure that we're cleaning up everything possible so they have less ammunition to, to pull from and and you'd mentioned to me sure. off air is that they they really have sort of four four areas that they mainly attack the hobby from. Yeah. Uh, can you run through those? Oh, yeah, for sure. So the first one is uh, welfare. They claim that reptiles are difficult or impossible to keep and that there's countless examples, excuse me, of them being kept badly. And, and that's simply not true. Objectively, we have never been able to find any evidence that tells us that there is a significant welfare issue with reptiles that would put it any worse than cat, dog, rabbit, budgie, parrot keeping. You know, rep reptiles are amongst the best kept animals as far as we can tell by the evidence that we have. Um, a few years ago, the number of reptiles kept in the UK was the same or greater than the number of dogs, but rep rescued and rehomed dogs outnumbered Reptile, rescued and rehomed reptiles 20 to 1. Wow. So that tells us a little bit about if there's the same number of dogs and reptiles, more or less, why do dogs outnumber reptiles in, in rehoming centers 20 to 1? That's just one bit of evidence that we have. Um, so, yeah, uh, welfare is the first one thing that they attack us for. The second thing they attack us for is human health issues. So this might be, oh, the guy next door keeps cobras or giant pythons and they're all going to kill your children and, and swallow your grandmother, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that rarely, if ever, happens. Um, or the other side of the coin is uh, zoonotic diseases. So the, the big one is salmonella. Um, oh, before that, do you remember back to the COVID era? Yes. When... Yeah. 
oh, we were we were all going to get some kind of terrible um, zoonotic disease from our animals. It was supposed to be a vector for oh the end of humankind. You know, COVID was just the beginning, and you could catch something from your leopard gecko or whatever that would wipe you out, wipe out humanity. So that was a big thing for a while. Yeah. Um, but the big push for human um, human health is salmonella they claim that salmonella is a massive issue you know if you look at the zoonotic diseases that you can get from reptiles they're few and far be between and washing your hands will keep you safe mm. yeah um whereas with cats man there's some serious stuff that you can get from cats yeah and some you stuff know? you cannot get rid of like there's that par weird parasite or whatever it is that you can that you i, I forget if it's a parasite or a talk whatever it is but yeah you can get stuff from your cats that you can never rid yourself of yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, it's not really a big problem, but it gets it gets touted as the reason why we shouldn't keep reptiles. And there was even a um, I don't think you have it in the USA. We have a political sorry, a, a legislative thing called no win, no fee. So if you have a problem, um, a lawyer will take on your case for free. And you won't get you won't get charged from them unless they win the case. Mm -hmm. So the animal rights groups set up a no win no fee uh, campaign for anybody who'd been to a reptile show and caught salmonella. So you could go along and get a lawyer to to represent you for free, and as long as they win the you know if, as long as they win their case they get paid. Do you know how many people took up that campaign to try and get money because they caught salmonella? No, how many? Zero. Mm. Zero. So that kind of gives us another benchmark that we can work with. You know, if you're going to catch salmonella, it's probably because you didn't, you know, look after your fridge well enough and ate some chicken you weren't supposed to or didn't wash your hands because of something. You know, so, yeah. So we started with welfare as the first one. Then we went on to human health, which was the second one. Um, the third one is uh, invasive species. Um, and this is usually... Um, it's one of the things that they were arguing about reptile shows for, the fact that we were bringing in so many reptiles into this one concentrated place in the UK, the reptile show, and then they were all going to become, become invasive. And they used an example of Dendrobates, the poison frogs, and said that they might become invasive in Doncaster, which is in the north of England, one of the <laughs> coldest, wettest, most Englandish of English places that you could expect Dendrobates to live, poison frogs to live. It was so ridiculous, but to the untrained eye, that might seem like a, a good argument. But yeah, invasive species risks is um, one of the issues that we get faced with regularly. And you can imagine that in the UK, that risk is minuscule, if indeed it could possibly exist. Right. So there you go. There's, there's invasive species. And the last one is conservation. Um, apparently, we tear so many... Um, reptiles from the wild that we're destroying um, populations in the wild. When you compare how many animals we bring in from the wild now compared with those that are captive bred, again, that's a non-argument. And if we really wanted to protect reptiles and other species in the wild, firstly, we'd be examining the cat issue again. And cats kill so many millions upon millions of birds and frogs and fish and reptiles and et cetera, et cetera that, uh, you know, maybe cats are a bigger issue than the pet trade. And also the number of reptiles that are um, killed and skinned for their for their skins. Yeah. That's a much bigger issue. And none of the ones that get caught for the skin trade are kept alive. 
Yeah. So, you know, again, conservation, it's a really disingenuous argument. And, um, and this is why I feel so incredulous about it. This is why, this is why I feel that the animal rights approach is just an ideology. They have very strong, very extreme views. There's relatively few of them, but they make a lot of noise. And you might have seen the end of our last video where it's basically a few very vocal, very angry people make a lot of noise that creates laws um, that force the rest of us to do stuff that isn't fair. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I always think because they have such an extreme view and, and they're sort of in some ways blinded by that aggressive ideology, the question I would always ask an animal rights person is if we were to remove herpetoculture completely, what, what are we getting rid of? And I don't, I don't even think they could define what they're getting rid of. The only thing that they can think of is you're getting rid of an animal in an enclosure in somebody's house. But okay, how about all the captive breeding that people have, been, have done over the years? How about all the education and, and outreach that we do all the time? How about the fact that we do actually have preservation and raise money for conservation and all these other things that are all connected to herpetoculture that I'm not even sure an animal rights person is even aware of because they're so they have the blinders on so aggressively that they just have this one goal to get the snake out of your house but we don't know how many vets became interested in, in reptiles because of an experience they had as a kid and you know it, it cascades over and over again and and thinking about the um you know the the wild population of dendrobates up in northern UK makes me <laughs> yeah. remember this. A couple of years ago, we had an issue where I am where there was this proposal for a positive list, and we can maybe talk about positive lists at some point. And I remember Please. looking at the list, and the species on this list were so out of left field, I could not believe it. Like some of them were Australian that aren't even in cap captive population at all. So which means that's to get them, a common be, occurrence. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. Are this? My, my theory was this list was so bizarre that either it was put together by someone who has no idea what they're doing or it's by somebody who is, is cunning enough to know that the species on this positive list would be virtually impossible for anybody to get and therefore by making a positive list they're essentially making a non-list at all. Is, is it either of those things or, or in your experience do you know is, is it often people just are so ignorant that they're creating laws with no information or do they actually know what they're doing? Take your, take your pick. Mm -hmm. okay. pick. I don't think I don't think there's much way to discern between the two often, but I can give you an example of a Clifford Warwick example, and I can give you an, an example from Norway. So Clifford Warwick developed a, um, a a supposed way of assessing how difficult different types of animal were to keep. And it wasn't just reptiles; it was across the board. So it the the, the system is called E mode. And it's uh, easy, medium, or difficult was the attribution it, it gave. Have a guess how many reptiles were easy? None. No reptiles are easy to keep. None. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I, I think even corn snakes and bearded dragons were put down as difficult to keep. Wow. So, yeah, I think that, I think that comes under one of your... Um, guesses is it people who don't know what they're talking about or is it people who do know what they're talking about and do know what they're doing i think in clifford warwick's case it was the case that they do know what they're talking about and he did know what he was doing um so that's that but the example from norway is interesting so in norway uh, reptiles were just banned outright from being kept from 1977 to 2017 just an outright ban so in that time 
um, the government conducted a study and part of that study estimated that there were about 110,000 reptiles being kept in Norway at that time because people will invariably just ignore the ban that they don't feel is fair. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And then they go underground and then they can't go to the vet and they can't ask for ex expert advice. So that's not particularly good for welfare, is it? If you force people to go underground. But anyway, 110,000 reptiles being kept in Norway. Um, there was even a thriving uh, commercial sector selling live food and equipment to the to these underground reptile keepers in Norway. And we had a we had a talk at one of the society meetings in the UK from um, a reptile refugee who had to leave Norway and go, I think, to Sweden so that he could keep his animals. So so that was in place from 77 to 2017. And then the campaigning that was underway by a guy called Svein, Svein Fosser, if I remember rightly. Fantastic guy. I interviewed him recently. He's a font of knowledge. And uh, they were him and some of his um, colleagues were campaigning to get this ban overturned. And one of the things that was being put on the table as a solution that Sven, I understand, campaigned heavily against was a positive list. However, at the same time, there were a handful of keepers who decided that a positive list was the best that they could hope for and um, campaigned with the government to produce a positive list. The species that appeared on the positive list were, by some coincidence, exactly the same species that were being kept by the people who were helping the government to produce a positive list. So the random, nerdy, left field, nobody, you know, these hardcore keepers weren't keeping leopard geckos, bearded dragons, corn snakes, because, you know, when you've been doing it a few years, you probably want something a little bit more. Yeah, Int yeah. Interest is not the right word, but you get my point. Yeah. I do love a good beardy, you know, beardies are interesting enough. But anyway, yeah, yeah. But these weren't the species that these guys were keeping. So they were like, oh, we'll produce a positive list then. Can you put my species on there? And oh, these are the you know, species that I've got. So that's how that positive list came about. If you asked me to predict which species would be on a positive list and which species wouldn't, I got nothing for you. I got, I got nothing. It's, yeah. You might as well throw darts at a dartboard. It's just totally random. Yeah, and that's it's funny. It's like, oh, just by chance, all the things that are on the positive list, I actually have in my basement. <laughs> you know, like it's just <laughs> it's just the way it goes. And I guess maybe I should have defined positive. I think most people probably are aware, but for those who are, don't know what a positive list is, that's essentially just a list of species that the government has decided that you are allowed to keep. And and, and you know, depending on where you are, you may already exist in a place with a positive list, but. Obviously, yep. there's so many issues with that. A, who's going to make the list, the first one? Who's going yeah. to police the list? That's a pretty you big can issue. police the list. Exactly, because no, especially the, a lot of government officials don't know what they're looking at. And then you get into issues with you know new like speciations where, where you have a, a new d description of a species or you're splitting a species and then it's like, what does that yep. even mean? So it becomes a nightmare. Yep. And I, I think maybe you could touch a little bit on what happened in Spain because uh, I, I know that you know, this is an example of how far things can get. And I forget if it's a positive list they, ha they have there or, or what's the situation. Oh, I'd better start that story from the beginning because sure. it staggers me every time I tell this story. It's just unbelievable. And I've done a few talks recently to different audiences. And one of the first things I say when I get in front of those audiences is I've seen the future. Yeah. And that's that's shocking. It sounds okay, you've seen the future. Tell me. That's that's quite a statement. So in Spain in 2016, um somebody 
took note of the number of ball pythons that were being imported into Spain, decided this was um, interesting, incredulous, problematic, and they conducted a, um, a risk assessment to ascertain whether or not ball pythons could become invasive in Spain. Now, we all know that Spain and you know, West Africa are very, very different places with very, very different environments. And the odds on ball pythons becoming in invasive in Spain is mm, nil, zero, nothing. Yeah. So everybody who read this um, risk assessment came to the same conclusion that it was ridiculous, poorly formulated, bad science, not worth listening to. And they put it in a drawer and they forgot about it for a few years. Then... I think it was 2019, an eco-activist came to a position of some power, uh, of civil servant power in, in Spain, unearthed this uh, risk assessment and decided that it was justification enough to enact a ban on ball pythons. Oh, and at the same time, we should also mention that it wasn't just ball pythons, it was Savannah, Savannah Bosque monitors and Peninsula Cooters as well. They and they were all just banned overnight. That was it. Gone. Another kind of random uh, array of species as well. A little, but I think they're all imported together. Oh, okay. Um, which I think is why they ended up on the same list. But you got again, who's who's gonna? If I asked you to guess, okay, ban three species in Spain. Take your pick. You know <laughs> who comes up with those three? Exactly. But anyway, yeah. there they were banned. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if ball pythons were banned in the USA? No. Or in the UK. Can you imagine what it would be like? I can't, I can't even begin. But anyway, that, that's what happened. So there's a gentleman um, that I've been in touch with. We interviewed him in one of our interviews. He's a guy called Jose. In fact, he's got the most Spanish name I've ever heard in my life, Jose uh, Lopez Sanchez. And the guy <laughs> is fantastic. He's awesome. He's so knowledgeable. And um, he's the president of the Valencia Herpetological Society, which is the biggest herpetological society in Spain. And they were so incredulous with the ban that they decided to campaign against the ban. And they managed to uh, recruit enough support and enough funding to take the law to court, to their high court. So they went to court and they turned up with some expert witnesses, with some really robust science. You know, it should have been a, um, an open goal really, because their evidence was so convincing. But this all happened at about the same time as lockdown, and a few things went wrong. The first one was that uh, the Spanish legal system was in such disarray over lockdown, they just wanted everything done quickly. And as far as Jose was concerned, um, the judge had already decided where he was going to go with the case and just wanted it to be over and done with. The second thing that happened was that Jose believes that if they'd had more information and more content that was easy to digest and easily read, then they could have uh, swayed the judge somewhat. But the third thing that happened was the judge was apparently of the, of the opinion that if our civil servant, if this expert, if this conservation-minded individual if these animal rights groups are campaigning so ardently for this topic then it must be true and so at the end of the court case he said i've heard what you have to say i understand what you have to say but we're going to keep the ban anyway 
So facts didn't help us. Science didn't help us. It was the amount of noise being created from our opposition that that flipped the chart. And not only did they lose the case, they also had to get another 12,000 euros, I think it was, to pay for the other side's legal fees. So that was great. In the meantime, at the same time, the Spanish government basically destroyed the CITES regulatory offices in Spain. I think there were apparently approximately 30 or so across Spain, and they reduced it to one. All the CITES officers were sent off to do other jobs, and uh, animal ro- young animal rights activists were recruited to um, implement and, le- and, and look after CITES. So this was about the time when reptile keepers all over Spain were being raided, um, and it wasn't just reptile keepers. I know of one parrot keeper who had a collection of parrots that um, were all legally owned and kept. And he had created a breeding project at his facility, bringing in animals from around the country so that he could look after this breeding project. The guy was quite elderly and a little bit disabled. And when the when the raids were going on across Spain, him and his wife were raided, door kicked open, thrown to the floor, handcuffed. Birds were taken, and and those birds are dead now. Um, Someone else I know had all of his animals taken. They were distributed to um, government-approved collections around the uh, the country, and a lot of those are dead now. And raids were happening all over the country. Legitimate keepers who'd been doing what they thought was best and doing things that the CITES department of old had approved of previously. Now, suddenly, the laws that you thought you were that you thought you were compliant with yesterday, we don't interpret those laws like that anymore. We interpret them differently. And now you're illegal. Now you're raided. Now you're in handcuffs. Yeah. So, so now that was you're a criminal. Yeah. And your animals are seized. All of your animals, they're gone. And wow. you're probably not going to see them again. And so a friend the, of mine. What, before I let you go into that story, before, when the ban of ball pythons was instituted, was was it a ban on all the animals that already existed? Or, or were the animals that were in collections supposed to be grandfathered in? Or was it an expectation that we were going to come pull animals? I think they were grandfathered in. But what, what it did was all the people with ball python breeding projects, what use are they? Right. What, what use were those collections then? So And, it, and to be honest, they... One of the laws said that you had to register your ball pythons. And so the, Jose did a freedom of information request to the his local Valencian authorities. And so how, he told me that in Valencia, the number of people who registered their ball pythons was seven. Seven people registered. Because what would you do? Hey, you need to tell us that you've got illegal animals. Everybody's like, no. <laughs> yeah, never exactly. Gonna yeah, I'm not going to fall for that trick. Yeah, Jose says you can still buy ball pythons. Of course, they're not being offered for sale online and they're not being offered for sale at stores, but you can you can still breed and keep ball pythons. And this is the thing about unfair laws. People don't listen to unfair laws. People don't listen when they don't think the law is doing a good job. Here in the UK, we have what's called the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. Mm-hmm. And this is a lot of animals that could potentially cause harm, you know, all the venomous stuff, all the crocodiles, big cats, you know, things that could cause harm. And and it's, it's a reasonably good idea that if you want to keep these animals, you should prove your competency. And most importantly, you should prove that you keeping these animals 
won't cause harm to your neighbors or to members of the general public. Do you know, if you want to keep cobras and you get bitten, it's a shame, but you knew what you would do and you signed up for it. If your neighbor gets bitten, that's not fair. Your neighbor shouldn't have to you know, run that risk mm -hmm. because they didn't sign up for it. Reasonably good idea. However, the local authorities in the UK administer the Dangerous Wild Animals Act in very different ways. Some of them say, hey, yeah, you know, show us that you've got some, you know, reasonable uh, safety mechanisms in place. Your license is going to cost you 70 quid or something. There you go. Others say, right, we want laser operated. This isn't true, but you get my point. Laser operated doors that are escape proof, double doors, twin locks, you know. Oh, and by the way, your license is going to cost you three and a half thousand pounds. Right. So when you're faced with an unfair administrative uh, load like that, guess what happens? People don't apply for a dangerous wild animals license. There was a, a report that said that only 10% of venomous keepers in the UK actually have a license. Personally, I think that's generous, mm. you know? So unfair laws just, just get ignored, which is why white lists, positive lists simply won't work. But coming back to Spain, um, you know, those keepers who had their animals taken, we can all empathize, sympathize with those people. If somebody came along and took your animals, you know, I can guess how you'd feel. You'd be sad. You'd be outraged. But it gets worse than that still. Spain have just implemented positive lists, white lists for everything, not just reptiles, for birds, for mammals, for um, amphibians, for fish, everything is covered now by a positive list. And if your reptile is over two kilograms, that's banned. You can't keep a reptile over two kilograms. You can't keep anything that's that's covered by CITES. The only reptile over two kilograms you can keep, my apologies, are Shalonians. Mm -hmm. So I can only assume that this two kilogram thing is something to do with how dangerous it is. But, you know, a snapping turtle, you're okay there. Yeah. You know, because it's a Shalonian. So very poorly thought out. Even things such as if you breed your dog and you haven't, you're not a registered uh, dog breeder, that you can be fined ten thousand euro. You know, it's there's so much bad legislation out there in Spain at the moment, and many European countries are looking to Spain for for examples. They're looking very much like they're doing with the uh, traveling education um, legislation in the U in the USA. Different states are looking to cookie cookie cutter that legislation into their state. And that's what's happening in the UK as well. And so much bad legislation is coming through Spain at the moment that nobody knows how it's going to be unraveled. The, they're hoping for a new political party in Spain soon, and they're, they're confident and being confirmed that that new party will overturn some of those laws. But it's more difficult to overturn laws than it is to stop them happening in the first place. And so I think Spain is going to be a problem for a long time. My friend in Spain, he's leaving. He's a he's a reptile refugee. Wow, yeah, and it's, it's wow this, indeed this culture of um, outrage politics, and it's kind of how you had said you know they're able to skew the the judge just because it's almost like the politicians are in some ways scared to go against the people that are screaming with their signs and throwing fake blood on things. Yeah. It's like we, we see that all over the place, not just in reptiles, all over. There's these weird laws coming in and weird rules and regulations. And it's because there's a very small group of people who are shrieking outside that everybody's suddenly yeah. afraid of. But at the other end of the scale, we also have to take some responsibility as reptile keepers, reptile hobbyists, reptile trade. We have to take some responsibility 
because the animal rights fraternity have always been very good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, they essentially have control of the narrative. And especially, this is especially true on social media. And this, I think, has been the big shift in power since um, since the social media and the internet became a thing. So previously, what would happen was some ridiculous legislation would be proposed by animal rights campaigners and then advocacy organizations, Chris Newman or and any of the other ones would come along and say, hey, hold on a minute. We're the specialists. We know what we're talking about. Um, this isn't accurate. This isn't correct. This isn't fair or proportionate. Maybe we should have a discussion to create fairer legislation. And, and this is true whether the legislation is fair or is unfair. One thing I know about Chris is he's never campaigned for bad process. He's always maintained that if we if there is a problem, then we should be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. But largely what these organizations did was they were firefighting superheroes. So problematic legislation would come along. Chris or his or his um, or his colleagues would put their underpants on the outside and put a cape on and fly in to save the day. And they did a great job at that. And they still do do a great job at that. It's an essential part of the process. And if you support these organizations, continue to support them and support them some more, because without these people, we, we would be in a lot of trouble. With that said, there's a missing piece of the puzzle. And this is where the animal rights fraternity, the animal rights groups have been able to get the better of us. Because there's no getting away from the fact that compared with the 80s and the 90s, today's reptile hobby is far advanced. Husbandry and care and welfare is vastly higher. So if we're so much better at keeping reptiles and if we've got support from these organizations, who look after our interest. Why are we having more problems now than ever before? How can that be? And I think we have the answer. And the answer is social media. Mm. So the animal rights groups are very, very good at social media. That's how they've gained so much funding, so much support, and so much power. By comparison, the reptile trade and hobby we haven't been very good at that at all. No. If you're looking for big views on social media, that's probably not the image that we want to be putting across. You know, the bad keepers that are getting bitten or, or you know, feeding videos that are, you know, horrific for the average person to watch. These kind of things is seemingly the main face of, of the reptile keeping world. We know that it's a tiny proportion. We know that most reptile keepers are far more welfare conscious, far more effective at keeping than previously but we don't have control of the narrative. So if we know that social media is how people get their opinions, how people get their ideologies, where people get their information on from, if we know that the animal rights groups are bombarding the average person with the narrative and the information and the misinformation and propaganda that they want to broadcast, who's looking after us? Who's telling our side of the story? Well, I think the answer is, very few people if any yeah so then we start to look at who should be telling our side of the story because every time we see stuff like this online every time we see that um i think we discussed the 75 percent of pet reptile statistic do you remember that yes yeah yeah so there's been this statistic online 75 percent of pet reptiles die in their first year now 
you and I as reptile keepers look at that statistic and go, really? That, that can't be true. How can that be true? We know that in our hearts it can't be true. But that statistic's been out there for decades, yeah? Running wild on the internet, being shared on social media, like an invasive species running around and causing destruction in its path, yeah? But we know it's not true. We even have research that tells us it's not true. We have two scientific studies from the UK. One of them came out with a statistic that says 3.25%, I think it is. Forgive, forgive my statistics for being slightly wrong if they are. And the other one says 3.75, I'm guessing. But it was a long, long way from 75%. Independent, different me methodology studies. So why aren't we making those statistics available why aren't we every time that 75 percent thing comes up online why isn't somebody doing something about it because the cry goes up somebody should do something somebody should write an article write to the newspapers somebody should do something why isn't anybody doing anything and this was the position that we found ourselves in so let's look at who should do something so the people with the biggest vested interest in protecting the trade and protecting the hobby and making sure our message is heard. The people with the biggest vested interest are the businesses that make money and most notably the big businesses that make money from the reptile trade. Yeah. So why don't they do something about it? Well, there's a good answer and a quite an under understandable answer, which is the people who run businesses are busy running their businesses. They can't be expected to be online looking for information on the internet to respond to and taking up the mantle and employing people to fight a battle that everybody should be fighting. So they're, they're busy running their businesses. That's what they do. So the other people who could do that, maybe it's the advocacy organizations that are at the front line fighting legislation. Well, maybe they could, but to be honest, they're they're not probably not funded enough. They're busy fighting the fight at the front line and they probably don't have the skills in order to do it as well so yeah. that's that's why they don't do it so maybe it should fall to the keepers to fight that fight for us every time they see something online maybe keepers should be fighting against it and coming coming back with facts and information and science well i'm sure they would but there are reasons why that doesn't happen either. Firstly, most keepers are busy with their lives. They have kids to take to football practice, um, you know, elderly parents, jobs to, you know, jobs to go and earn a living. So that's the first thing. But even the ones who can find time to do it don't have the resources, probably don't have the communication skills to do so. Mm -hmm. So that's where we came in. We took to bolting our expertise onto the side of the advocacy organizations for many years, trying to help them to communicate. And we failed at this. And the reason we failed at doing this is because while we were helping the advocacy organizations do their communications work, our day job business with the visitor attractions was suffering. So right. when we changed our focus to work on our day job to earn a living, we weren't working with the advocacy organizations. And this is something that bent my brain for for years and i've been talking for years that we ought to do something about this and it got to the point uh, about a year ago where i was talking to my wife about this subject again and going over what we may be able to do about it again and she sat me down and she said tony you've been talking about this for a long time it's time to stop talking and start doing and so 
that's what we did. We we put Responsible Reptile Keeper together as a way to address these issues that are causing us so many problems on social media, so many problems because we don't have control of the narrative. And we did our best to organize it in such a way that the organization could be effective and robust. And there's a lot of workings behind the scenes to make that happen. But yeah, that's that's why we did what we did. I can't believe I spoke for so long about that topic, but you can tell that I'm pretty passionate and ranty about it, I'm afraid. No, that's perfect. I mean, and, and that was the thing when I first stumbled across it, the, the responsible reptile keeping, I w- it was kind of like it came out of nowhere. And the first videos that I saw were so well done that it seemed like I'm like who is this like who's making these videos because it just seemed very professional and it was it, it is the response that we need because you're so right I mean not only are reptile it, it would be it would be ben- almost more beneficial if reptile keepers were not on social media so it's not only that we're just a neutral Sometimes. you know we actually cause a lot of damage in some ways just because yep. of the amount of like you said there's the flashy you know getting bit you know feeding off live animals all these different things that we don't want necessarily, yeah, it's a part of keeping it, it's, but it's not the most exciting part of keeping it. It's not why we do it. Most people aren't interested in feeding off live animals to their animals. It's just part of the yep. thing, but it's what other, it's what, you know, the PETA's in the WAP or what animal world or whatever they're called, animal protection. World animal protection, yeah. Yeah, world animal protection, they'll cling on to, and that's that's their poster for against us. And we need somebody to give us a, a more professional message that does, you know, hey, that 75% statistic is so far off, it's not even funny. I mean, half the reptiles we keep you could not even feed for a year and they would still be alive. Like it's, it's sort of amazing to think that <laughs> yes. that that statistic has been floating around with so much vigor. Google it, Google it right now. Anybody who's watching this, just you know, open a tab and Google it and see what you get. And hopefully our video will come up refuting it. But imagine that video wasn't there. It's all over the internet. It's the only thing all over the internet. And you won't find um, Becky Clark's study saying, 2.5%. You won't find Dice's study, the Jarell Institute. Um, you won't you won't find their studies saying two point uh, sorry, 3.75. My my figures might be one or two percent out. I'm sorry. But yeah, you won't find those. All you'll see is the is the horse crap 75% number. It's unbelievable how pervasive that is. And that's just one example of one story that's causing a problem. There's countless, countless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do, do you know where they originally got that 75% from? Oh, they, yeah. They, oh, yeah. How did they get that? <laughs> it's amazing. So the in, in our video, we, we talk about three things that's wrong with that study, but there's actually countless. We wouldn't, we had to discount a lot of the problems with that study because the video would have been too long. So the first one is they said they, the study was peer-reviewed. Well, it wasn't. We got in touch with the editor of the publication where it re- was reviewed, and he told us that it wasn't a peer-reviewed study. So that's fault number one. Uh, fault number two, they vastly underestimated the population of animals in the UK. So there's an organization that, um, a really good organization, actually. They used to be called the Pet Food Manufacturers Association, and that now they're called uh, UK Pet Food. And they do an awesome survey every year to survey how many animals are kept in the UK. And their survey methodology is really good when estimating the number of dogs and cats, but everybody pretty much accepts that the methodology doesn't work for reptiles. And there's a reason for that. They estimate that if you keep a pet, you probably keep 1.6 pets. And the way they come up with that number is that if you keep a dog, you probably just have one dog. Some people have two dogs and very few people have more. If you keep a cat, you probably keep one cat. 
Some people have two cats, but very few people have more. So 1.6 works, yeah, as an average. Right. If you keep reptiles, you're probably keeping more than more than 1.6 reptiles, like like fish. You know, yeah. most a lot of people who keep reptiles keep, you know, dozens, scores, sometimes hundreds of reptiles. So 1.6 just doesn't work for for reptiles. But they use that statistic, even though there are far better studies out there. They knowingly use that statistic, even though the Federation of British Herpetologists study, I think it was last year, worked out very credibly that there were 8.8 million reptiles in the UK, which is a lot different to the to the number that comes out of um, pet food PFMA study. But they they disingenuously used that study to underrepresent the population in the UK. So that was fault number two. Fault number three was they. They got figures from our government as to how many reptiles fly into the UK. OK, that's a number we can use. What they didn't do is subtract the amount that flew straight out again mm. in transit to other countries. So they overrepresented the number coming in, underrepresented the number that were alive and well living in the UK, and then came up with their 75% statistic. And it's such bad science and such incomplete assessment that but who's going to know Did, yeah. I, you might have seen that study are you going to read those 50 pages no everybody just reads the abstract at the end that says 75 percent. then it becomes fact yeah and that's just an example of of the type oh, of manipulation that they'll do and it and then it, it's it's almost depressing when you realize when you start to unfold it and go wow they this is there's absolutely no substance to this at all you're basically standing on a house of cards and it but for some reason, it still can just carry on. You know, like it's such a good tagline. Seventy-five percent of animals are dead, and that just has a life of its own, and it just carries its own. It just goes on forever, really. And this is the, one of the big problems we have as a trade: is that the animal rights story is like, oh my god, big problem. You know, dying reptiles and stolen from the wild, and it's great big headlines. Whereas our topic, our headlines are. No, not really. It's not that bad. Nothing to see here. You know, it's not that, you know, not, no big, no big headlines for you. I'm afraid it's just that, you know, nothing too bad is happening. Yeah. And ours just doesn't make headlines. And that's, that's the difficulty we have. Now, w would you consider eventually using rept responsible reptile keeping to promote some of the like amazing, like, can we find headline worthy accomplishments within herpeticulture that could be uh, promoted oh, God, in a way yeah. like f world's first captive breeding of this species that you know zoos haven't been able to accomplish but this guy in his basement who's obsessed with this genus and species was able to do like things along those lines to give us some headlines to uh, associate with the public yeah we, we definitely should and that's on our list to do it's a very long list as you can imagine but yeah. the world zoos conservation everyone has a lot to thank private herpetoculture for private herpetoculture has led the way you know cut a path for herpetology every major advancement in herpetology has come from the private sector and zoos often follow in our wake they use the information that comes out of private herpetoculture it's astounding we often see um, headlines hey zoo bred this for the first time ever and then we look at each other and go, hang on, we were breeding those in the 90s. Yeah. You know, that's, but it's a zoo first, you know, and, and fair play to them. They do do a lot of good work. And I've got a lot, you know, I've got a lot, a lot to say for zoos. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm saying is that private herpetoculture is under applauded. 
because if you create a positive list of just a handful of animals, let's let's say, who's learning about these weird boids or or lapids or you know um, you know colubrids that aren't on the positive list? Who's learning about them? It basically stops all scientific learning if you stop private herp herpetologists and and keepers from keeping species that they want to keep. Then you know that that stops the learning. There's my greatest example. In fact, there's two actually. One was golden mantellas, which were under threat in Madagascar um, due to mining and logging and the other uh, other bits and bobs of you know habitat destruction. So a group of um, private herpers uh, paid to bring a few into America and the UK, where they were bred to satisfy the demand that was previously taking them from the wild. So that's the first thing they stopped being taken from the wild. And secondly, the prices paid for those um, for those frogs was such that they were enabling um, refuge centres to be uh, refuge parks to be set up in Madagascar to look after the few places where those animals still existed. And I'm not sure what's happening with that project now. I don't think it's good news, but that's not because we didn't try. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the second one is crested geckos. So crested geckos were thought to be extinct until uh, 1992. Oh, man, my data. Yeah, I my think around there, 92, about. 93, yeah. Might have been 94, I forget. It's early 90s, yeah. Yeah, until a gang of reptile keepers went over, found them, brought them back to the USA, bred the hell out of them, and now in the UK, they're the fourth most captive bred lizard. That's a success story. Um Zoom and they're plentiful in the Black wild as well. That's the other thing to mention. It's not yeah. like there aren't any left on New Caledonia. There's, there's exactly. still, you can go there and find them all over the place. Everybody who's got a UV lamp in their enclosures th should say thank you to Gary Bagnall and Zoomed for making that happen in, um, in, in herpticulture. And we could go on, tell me one good thing that's come out of herpticulture and I'll, sh I'll point at a private keeper. Our understanding yeah. of Ferguson zones. Thank you, Francis Baines. I could keep going all day. You know, it's um, so, yeah, but banning people from keeping reptiles is a bad idea, even to the point where if you only have a positive list and I can only keep these animals, maybe these animals aren't the one that's right for me. Maybe I should have been keeping this one instead. And so I'm trying to keep this one, but doing it badly because this one would have been a better animal for me. By restricting the pool of available animals, you're restricting the ability of a keeper to keep what suits them best. Oh, there's so many reasons. So, yeah. so many reasons. Yeah, it, it does become that. I mean, it's just a classic thing that happens to governments and bureaucracy is that there's a tendency to want to over-regulate, over-rule, and create so many things that in their mind, it's, you know, creating a, basically bumpers in a bowling alley that, you know, keeping people in line and they're going to have success at the end. But really, you just destroy the you destroy the game, uh, you know, when you're playing bowling, for example. But you, you, <laughs> yeah, you re reduce the flexibility. Yeah, like you, you reduce the flexibility to such an extent that nothing new can ever happen. And actually, you're going to start doing damage. And uh, yeah. that's what's so scary about some of those Spain examples. You know, people are just going to leave because it's just become such a ridiculous amount of rules and things to follow that then people don't even want to be there and then who knows what's going to happen with the underground market and all this extra stuff that's happening it's it's not going to be good you've hit the nail on the head there this was a point i was hoping to make is that the big news in legislation is usually bans yeah that's the big headlines that's the stuff that affects people now that's the stuff that causes big problems but that's not really where the animal rights 
fight is. The real fight is in bureaucracy, is the slow death, the slow creep of hassle, headaches and problems and effort and at the point at which there are so many rules. And I think the case in Florida is a good example of this. Yeah. Where you bring in so many rules and so many hurdles to jump through and so much administration, there is no way that people can be can effectively follow it, which was a, a big part of the case down in Florida. Um, people just can't possibly do the right thing. People can't possibly stay within the law when you've got so many laws that you're in trouble, whatever you do. So that's the first one. And the second one is it has two other um, consequences. The first one is, okay, there's so many laws, there's so much problems, so much bureaucracy and, and paperwork, I'm just not going to bother. Yeah, that's the first problem. And so that shrinks the trade, shrinks the science, shrinks the um, uh, amount of people who are, do, who are involved in, in reptile keeping. But the other problem is that people who look at the laws and look at the rules and go, yeah, sod it, I'm going to ignore them. I'm going underground. I'm going to be legal. So show me how excess bureaucracy, legislation, positive lists. Show me how that works, because it's not doing anything for welfare. It's not doing anything for compliance. It's not doing anything for good science. I, I simply cannot see how anybody would think it's a good idea. It's a terrible idea, whichever yeah. way you look at it. I mean, there's examples of all over the place. I mean, you can look at you know communist states and whatnot, where there's an over bureaucracy and it becomes, uh, you know, you're eating grass because there's no food around you know it, it can get really bad because things are there's so much rules that again that you reduce the flexibility and there's there's nothing you, you only have two choices you basically just have to break the rules and it, it doesn't it doesn't really work and, and with spain do, do, do they have they do have an issue with an invasive is it california king snakes that are invasive there is it so yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because someone's going to say oh there's an invasive species and, and you know they are creating damage I don't know if they are, but Kelly Kings. That's a good story. I like that one because I've, um, I've got a friend over in Gran Canaria that I go and visit regularly and we go um, looking for Kelly's while we're there. So it, it's happening. And there are two populations, the normal, uh, normal colored banded population. And there's a, another albino population and they're at separate ends of the island. So we know what we're going to find dependent on where we're looking. And yes, they're an introduced species that is, that are causing some problems in Spain, but let's, Let's look at it in more nuance. One of the problems with animal rights campaigning and most of the conversations that we have is that the arguments are polarized. It's either this or this. It's black and white. Ban them. Don't ban them. Ban them. Don't ban them. That's not how any topic in the world can be discussed. We have to discuss it with the nuances, with the circumstances, with the different examples inherent. So coming back to Californian king snakes. Firstly, are Californian king snakes invasive in Spain and causing a problem? Yes. However, how many cats are there in Spain that are causing a far greater problem than the Californian king snakes could ever cause? The comparing the two problems, Californian king snakes shrink into minuscule nothingness compared with the problems caused by cats and development and roadkill and all of the other things that are causing problems for Spain's um, fauna and flora. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the ban on Lampropeltis getula, by the way, it's not just Cali's, it's all of Lampropeltis getula are banned across the whole of Europe. Now, Britain got its way out of this a little bit by leaving Europe 
and that's a that's a different conversation for another day and i'm pretty sure that britain won't be taking that law um although across the rest of europe they're all banned and there's a couple of things to discuss there the first way is that the european ban works in such a way that you can't say yes we agree that this species could be invasive and a problem but this species isn't isn't a problem the whole list of all of the invasive species that are proposed by all the different countries and king snakes were proposed by spain you either have to vote to implement the whole list or vote to implement none of the list as a country yeah so if there's something on that list that you know is a problem but you don't believe callies are going to be a problem you can't say oh yeah we like this bit but not that bit you have to vote for the whole list that's the first thing so it's a yeah? binary so, system <laughs> yeah but secondly, why would Cali Kings be banned in Sweden, Britain, Poland, in the cold areas of Europe where they have absolutely no possibility of being a problem? So again, it's, a, it's unfair legislation, it's unnecessary legislation, it's overreaching in terms of its effect and underreaching in terms of its usefulness. Yeah, I don't know what to say. It's um, there's better ways of going about this than a ban. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's why I, I really try to focus so much on what positives herpetoculture provides greater society because I think that's so important for people to understand. Is you know we already talked about some force for good exactly, and and what are some of those things, and and the more we focus on that, the better because then then the public goes, oh yeah, I know, I remember, you know, the reptile guy came over for my son's birthday and it was a great time, and then my son's super interested in reptiles, and instead of watching TikTok, he's outside looking for snake, whatever. I mean, you can go on. Yep. There's all these different cascades of experience that kids can have, and 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 like you said, a, a net positive in society, and it's so important that we focus on those things. So are you, in general, are you quite optimistic about where we could be headed or right now is it sort of too uh, turbulent to, to say? It's my job to be, and I, I quote my friend Chris Newman here because this is one of his favorite sayings, it's my job to be um, optimistically pessimistic. Okay. Um, so we set up Responsible Reptile Keeping in order to be a dedicated media department for the international reptile keeping hobby and trade so if you're a media department our job is to tell our side of the story and and that's what we're doing best we we fight that fight on four fronts which i'll speak to you about shortly but am i optimistic if we look at the trajectory of where we're headed i shouldn't be optimistic Mm -hmm. because the problem is growing and growing and growing. And I think there are more problems now than ever before. And most people don't even know what the problems are and don't know how bad they'll be if they come to pass. And this is one of the great problems of advocacy organizations. If advocacy organizations do really well and no bad laws come in, everybody says, well, you know, there's no problem here. There's no reason for this big furore about what could happen. It's like crying wolf. So that's, yeah. that happens. Whereas if the problems do happen and legislation does come in, they say, hey, what have these advocacy organizations been up to? That's what they, we pay them to do. Mm -hmm. So we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. Our success, and this is where I'm optimistic, our success as an organization comes from how well we do our job in getting our side of the story out there 
our success is measured by the waves that we're causing, by the buzz that we're creating, by the amount of times our information and content gets shared and liked and commented on. Our success is born of that. We can broadcast all we like, but if our content isn't being perpetuated and shared widely by by keepers, we can't hit everybody. We can't knock on everyone's door and say, hey, here's some here's some information. We need our supporters to do that for us. And I'm confident that if we can embrace that principle, I'm confident that if we can get keepers to share our content and for our voice to be widely heard, we can do what the internet does best, which is to harvest supporters, harvest opinion, change people's opinion, give them the information they need to make a credible, well-thought-out position on mm -hmm. reptile keeping, on the reptile trade, and on the reptile hobby. That's what we that's what we need to do. Um, and if we can do that, then that makes me confident. Yeah, yeah, and it's that you want to garner that organic interest where people are, you know, organic supporters, where people find you and are 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 totally on board with the message and it's not a sort of a contrived thing where you know you have a media like a an ad campaign or something attempting to get people to, to buy onto the message it's like no it's it's honest communication with keep keepers and giving them the tools that they need because a lot of people don't i mean that was always a question i would ask at the beginning beginning of this you know starting this podcast was why should we be allowed to keep reptiles and a lot of times i would tell keepers you want to almost picture yourself in a courtroom and then you know, a lawyer defense lawyer asks you that question and are you able to give an elevator pitch for for why we should be able to keep it or why you should have the, the the privilege to do that and a lot of times people don't because they don't want to think about that they are just interested in having these animals and being able to you know in, interact with them but i think it is important that we have yeah 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 it's a it's understandable and a, there's nothing wrong with that too we're not going to ask everybody to be able to craft a perfect argument but for those who want to well there should be resources there that they can kind of cling on to well, that's what we're aiming to do. We're aiming to create the resources that people can use. We've thought about how we want to and how we should uh, transmit these messages, convey this information. And we can use our skills as um, as communicators, as journalists, as designers to make sure that that message gets across um, concisely and engagingly. We, we use a three-tier principle, which is engage, inform, enrich. Firstly, we need to catch your eye. We need to engage you. We need to go, hey, look at this. This is cool. This is interesting. This is worth having. So then we've got your we've got your attention. And then we inform you. We give you some information. And we put that information in a way that's useful to you and interesting to you. And the last thing, we're enriching people. The information that we give across is useful. It does something for you. It has an effect on you. And, and that's what we do. And we, we can do that. That's what we do best. Getting people to share it is vital. And we've been launched for about four and a half months now. And we're absolutely staggered by the amount of support that we have. We would we did not believe for a minute that within, you know, within the first year, whether we'd have any traction at all. Mm -hmm. And we've been staggered by the amount of good support we have. We receive emails every day. We receive good messages on social media. We see the statistics for social media people are doing exactly what we hope they do people are supporting us in exactly the way we hope they'd support us and that makes us confident i can feel a tide shift happening there are now far more people 
interested in advocacy and protecting the hobby and protecting the trade than there ever used to be. The news is out there. We're creating a gang of supporters, a gang of advocates who will get our message out there for us and with us. We'll keep creating content if you guys can keep sharing it for us. Yeah. And you'd mentioned that you have four, was it four tactics that you use in order? Can you, do you want to run through well, those? Yeah, this, these are kind of four things that we that we aim to do as an organization. And the first one is um, fighting against animal rights propaganda. That's a pretty easy one to do. We can usually pick great holes in their arguments and, and where they have a point, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of use that to help make the trade better. There are points about the trade that we feel should change and i'll come on to that but certainly most of the animal rights organizations are so flawed disingenuous and propaganda based that it's easy for us to create content like the 75 percent video and say hey here's one side of the story but actually here are the facts so yeah. that's the first thing we do we um we fight against animal rights propaganda the second thing we aim to do and our next video will be a good example of this is we want to improve welfare because bad welfare gives animal rights groups ammunition to fight us with. Now, when I say improve welfare, I don't mean kind of talk about which UV light is the best or which substrate is the best for crested geckos. That's that's a far more advanced process than we have time or indeed the knowledge to do. What we're talking about is the stuff that gets us you know, fights back and bites us on the bum. Things like, please don't release your animals into the wild. That's a welfare issue that's just so obvious that people should be doing something about, you know? So that's that. Things like, maybe don't feed your reptile so much that it becomes obese, yeah? yeah? These are these are easy arguments for us to, to talk about. And uh, it helps stop keepers and hobbies from doing the things that animal rights people could weaponize against us. Our podcast with Tarek about animal uh, reptile obesity comes out, I think, in the next couple of days. So that's the second thing. Firstly, fight animal rights people. Secondly, um, improve welfare that could come back and bite us on the bum. The third thing is being politically active and having a political voice. Mm. Uh, Animal rights campaigners usually have half a dozen or more people on their side of the table, all saying the same thing, singing off the same hymn sheet, approaching it from, you know, their their side of the story we've got a precious few people advocating for us. So we want to be one of those people sat behind the table advocating, helping to create communications that the advocacy groups can use to get our message across more easily. So that's the third thing. And the fourth thing, and I think this is vital, although this is somewhat in the future because we simply don't have the funds to do it, the keepers and and trade and and responsible keepers are way way behind the curve in terms of how much research that we have on our side advocating for us telling our side of the story animal rights campaigners have paper after paper of so-called scientific research that they rely on now let's ignore the accuracy or efficacy of that scientific research we know that it's largely flawed but they do have it and pretty much gone are the days when you could turn up in parliament or turn up at, at your Senate meeting or whatever. And the animal rights people put their scientific papers on the table and you say, well, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I can tell you that that's wrong. That used to be effective. 
now they say right where's your science where's yeah. your peer-reviewed papers where's your research and we we largely don't have it so we'd like to fund that research and we would hope that in doing so we'd we'd harvest information that helped the trade and helped the hobby sometimes we'll do research and we won't like what it sees and we'll have to swallow that you yeah. know if and we're here that's a, 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 yeah exactly it gives you credibility to say hey this is how we thought we should keep we did this little study on welfare and it turns out we're wrong about this thing let's make that wide uh, widely available for everybody to make the shift so we're not we don't want to seem like we're ideologically bound to just yeah. keeping reptiles like Polarized. i said earlier yeah exactly yeah. we just want to well, yeah. keep it's a right to keep We've done this in the UK quite well, self-regulating. There was a, um, a problem back in the 80s and 90s where we were importing thousands of captive farmed iguanas and selling them to beginners. Mm -hmm. That's something that was part of the trade. And eventually all the traders got together um, with Chris Newman from Repta and said, hey, do you know, every iguana you sell is a lost customer because the odds on that customer being, out, being happy with their purchase and having a big, happy, friendly animal that they got on really well with <laughs> – yeah. That doesn't happen very often at all. They end no. up with a six-foot monster that tries to eat them, has complicated nutrition, complicated UV needs, and they're probably not going to be happy with their purchase. So, hey, how about if we sell them a leopard gecko? How about if we sell them a bearded dragon instead? Maybe they'll be happier. Maybe they'll stick around longer. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's various occasions like that where in the UK at least, and I'm sure in America as well, we, the trader's looked at itself and gone, hey, do you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be bringing in all those tiny little swifts that live for a, that live for a month. Maybe we shouldn't be, you know, keeping these animals that aren't really great pets for most people. I think most reptiles can be kept. I'd probably even say that all reptiles can be kept by the right keeper. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But those types of keepers are few and far between, and most are better off with bearded dragons, leopard geckos, crested geckos, Greek tortoises, corn snakes. You know, that, that's what suits most people. So let's make happy customers. But that's certainly something that we need to look at closely, research, um, making sure we've got a responsible trade and a responsible hobby. And that's the name of our organization. And we'll we'll, we'll stick to that position. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's super well said. And at the end of the day, everybody here in this hobby first and foremost is an animal person and at the end of the day what we want is what's best for the animals and all of what you just said is the animal is at the top of that pyramid making sure that their welfare is taken care of that not only the individual animals taken care of but the population within captivity and the population in the wild we, we that's what we love we love the yeah. animals and we want to make sure that that's obvious it shouldn't be like you know why do you keep weird animals in your basement without having a, an explanation? We, we want people to say, like, Look, these are these are animal people. They, they love the animals and they actually, we, we should be able to show that we like them more than the so-called animal rights groups that uh, yeah. maybe aren't doing anything, well, as far as I'm concerned, aren't really doing much for the animals. Or we, like you said, we could list all these different things that have happened in herpeticulture that are a huge benefit to society. So I think you're going about it the exact right way. And, and I'm not surprised that people are becoming more you know in, enthusiastic about it and, and supporting you uh, because it's what people want. I think there's been a giant hole in herpeticulture and people are kind of craving yeah. this. Yeah, that's, that's the feedback we're getting. And um, we're really encouraged by all the feedback because honestly, we we sat at home for you know six months planning this and wondering why hasn't it been done before? Maybe it's because it can't be done or shouldn't be done or there's some great trip hazard or, you know, and, and there's reasons why, why it hasn't been done before. 
So we were really stepping out into the darkness and hoping this thing took off and hoping this thing worked. Um, and it's been fabulously encouraging. You know, the, the feedback that we're getting is astounding and um, it's very supportive. Now, something I should say is that the vast majority of feedback we're getting is, hey, you guys are doing it right. This is perfect. Wonderful. We love what you're doing. And that's lovely to have. And when we work hard and we create content, we hope that it'll do the job. And when people tell us it is doing the job, that's great. What's also useful is when we hear um, feedback that gives us an idea of how to do things better. Mm. We're, we're very new at this. Um, we understand communications. We understand reptiles. We understand the advocacy side of things. And that Venn diagram crosses over and we sit in the middle of it. But we don't think that we're perfect. We know that there are things that we could do better. And the only way we can do better is if people let us know. We're so grateful for great feedback that helps us to become better. And uh, your your viewers can certainly help us with that. We're Don't be shy. I'm a big boy. We can take it. Give <laughs> us some feedback, you know, um, share our stuff and tell us what you want to see. Tell us what we can do. Tell us what we can do better. We love that stuff and we'll thank you for it. Yeah, then I, I think you will hear feedback for sure. And 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 I think, yeah, criticism and not criticism, constructive feedback is always really beneficial. And, and we just it need to keep sharpening, sure. sharpening the tools because we are fighting up against giant organizations here. Oh, goodness. It, is there anything that we didn't say today that you wanted to wrap up with? Because I think we did cover almost everything on our list. And I, like I said, I'm super excited, but I, I want to give you a, a final word if there's anything that you wanted to wrap up with. I don't think so. I think the only thing I can finish with is is a bit of blatant publicity. Um, Please. Because I'm, I'm, I'm expecting that uh, some of your, or maybe all, most of your viewers might not have uh, come across us. So if you go to our website, you'll see all types of different content. You'll see podcasts, videos, interviews, articles, magazines, and, and a wealth of other stuff. And the reason we produce so much so many different kinds of content is that we know that people like to consume different kinds of content. It's no good as just producing in podcasts because we know that some people want to meme, some people want a five minute video, some people want to read a magazine. So we're trying to produce as many different types of content to appeal to as many different kinds of people as we can. We also know that we can't just put this content on a dusty old website and expect people to go and find it. We have to transmit to the places where we know people hang out, and which, which is essentially social media. So we're on TikTok, we're on YouTube, we're on Substack, we're on Facebook, we're on Insta. Um, we've got our own website and we'll probably expand out into other platforms. So we're hoping that you'll come across our content or go and find it on our website or our platforms. Just type responsible reptile keeping anywhere on the internet and, and we'll pop up hopefully. So that's the first thing. So what can your guys do to help us? Well, a handful of things. As I mentioned previously, we only succeed if our broadcasting gets out there. We only succeed. The hobby gets better protected and we get our message out there. If your guys share our stuff, share our stuff, like our stuff, comment on our stuff, that stuff is gold for us. That's wonderful. That's the first thing they can do. The second thing they can do is join us as a member. We're a membership organization. We're international. The price of our membership is the same as a cup of coffee or a large cup of coffee, at least, but a cup of coffee. And um, that what that 
does is, is a handful of things. Firstly, it recruits somebody to our organization and to our cause who's probably going to share our stuff. Mm-hmm. Second thing it does is it gives us more people on our side, faces and hands where we can say, hey, we've got X amount of members. We've got 20,000 members or whatever it might be when we're, when we're grown. These are the people that support our cause. So maybe you should listen to us. Yeah? That's vital. The third thing that it's important for is, of course, fun- is funding. We can't do what we do without funding. So while we're earning our day job, which we've essentially reduced to about half of its former size, we we need to be working more on responsible reptile keeping. So that's that's the other thing is funding, the third thing. So the last thing that your viewers can do is tag brands or companies. And what that will do is it will raise awareness amongst those companies and help us to have more credibility and more oomph when we approach them for funding. Um, The more these brands and organizations are aware of our work, the more likely they are to support us. So if your guys tag brands, that would be that would be really helpful. But, yeah, um, we hope we're doing right. We hope we're along the right lines. Give us some feedback. Join us as a comrade and uh, hopefully we can ride this wave where we can stop the animal rights people from having it all their own way. Because at the moment they are, we need to be telling our side of the story and we can only do that with your help. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is really time for us to enter the discussion as well. And I think that's a, those are perfect calls, call to actions for, for the listeners as well as myself. And I guarantee you there's probably some brands listening to this right now, even as well. So the more awareness that we have around this, this movement and this, this organization, I think the better, Tony, this was amazing. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you have a, an incredible wealth of knowledge, just the history of herpeticulture, but also I love the vision. I think this is so needed, and I'm super excited that even you're only in, in four months and you've already built such a, you know, a, a fantastic organization. It's going to be a year from now. It'll look totally different, and it's going to be bigger and better, and it's just going to keep going. So thank you so much for not only joining me on the podcast today, but doing what you're doing because it's uh, much needed and phenomenal. I really can't thank you enough as well. Obviously, your reach and your popularity means that we'll be able to get that there to more people than we ever have done. So um, I can't thank you enough for getting us on board. And uh, yeah, next time I'm in the USA, hopefully we can grab a coffee or a beer. All right. That is the end of that episode. Tony, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You are an incredible wealth of information. And I just thank you so much for putting this organization together. I cannot wait to see how it evolves over time. As I mention on the podcast all the time, it is our responsibility as responsible reptile keepers to promote our positive nature to the people who aren't in the hobby. It's, it is tough to explain to somebody why we are a benefit, but we are a benefit to the greater society, even for people that aren't interested in keeping reptiles, whether that's introducing people to or young kids to animals, helping in conservation, breeding new species in captivity for the first time, helping with preservation connecting people with nature that's a huge part people living in cities they don't even see trees sometimes you know or grass having a beautiful enclosure that connects people with nature and reminds them why it's important that we don't devastate the natural world with you know logging and whatnot and there's a laundry list of things that are really positive about herpeticulture and i think responsible reptile keeping is going to do a great job of of arming everyone with those with those facts and those concise points that you can actually use to defend yourself against some of these wild claims that come from the animal rights groups. And we have to admit, sometimes the animal rights groups do have decent claims. Maybe maybe there's enclosure sizes that are too small, or maybe there's bad things happening in the wild-caught trade. You know, those are the things that we have to accept responsibility for and 
use them and integrate that and move forward and stop doing the, whatever those things are. But there's obviously a lot of claims, as we mentioned in the podcast, that are so outlandish and, and false that but they create great headlines. So it becomes very difficult to to fight against. So anyway, Tony, thank you so much. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you do have some spare change kicking around, make sure you head to Responsible Reptile Keeping website. That'll all be in the links in the show notes and you can join the membership there. If you're someone that doesn't have the extra financial change kicking around, no problem at all. As Tony said, one of the most powerful things you can do is just share the content, whether that's their Instagram posts or social media posts or YouTube videos, that really does help. If you're looking for more information on this podcast, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. As always, thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you so much to all the patrons that really do help make this show exist. If you're interested in becoming a patron, you can head to patreon.com slash animals at home. I will see you guys in the next episode.